Open your Bibles to Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36. And let's read this text together and then um, and we'll pray and we will get into this. This is the word of the Lord. Isaiah writes, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice, In the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all these gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, 
And Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Let's pray. Father, it's remarkable to me, and it shouldn't be anymore, but it's always remarkable to me. It's always, it really is always astonishing to me how relevant your words are in every single age. Your words are timeless because they're timeless truth with a capital T. Father, your word is not dependent upon you know, the state of humanity. It's not dependent upon the state of cultures or civilizations. Father, your word stands alone as truth. And so I thank you, Father, that you have provided for us this chapter of Scripture. Because in it, Lord God, you show us very clearly the stratagems of Satan. The ways in which he seeks to, Father, steal our faith. To make us to, to falter in our trust in you. And Lord God, to, to fall away. I pray, Lord God, that as we study this text tonight, you would give us minds and hearts to understand and receive these words. I pray, Lord God, that you'd make me a capable teacher. That by your Spirit... Father, I would teach these words accurately and faithfully and with effect. Father, I, I am just grateful to you that, that we have these words, this, this record that Isaiah has provided for us. And Father, we know it's true. And so help us to stake our lives on your holy truth and on nothing else. God, give us the, the firmness of conviction. And Father, the, the steadfastness of faith and the certainty of hope that we need. Lord God, to, to stand fast, to stand firm and to glorify Christ in every aspect of our lives. So meet with us now, Lord God. Instruct us from your word. Be our teacher. Lord God, we are your students. Help us to understand. Help us to comprehend these words, I pray. In Christ's blessed and holy name I ask it. Amen. So here's the deal, right? Isaiah now is, is sort of snaps us back with a sudden, sudden jolt from the awesome and the arresting and the glorious and the wonderful picture of the day of judgment, but also of our salvation, right? As his chosen people, like we saw in chapters 30, 30, 34 and 35, and now he snaps us back to the inglorious turmoil of the here and now, right? At least the here and now of Isaiah and his contemporaries, what they had to wrestle with. And I, and I want to just say from the very beginning, that that's what, you know, I hate to even use this phrase, but that's what true religion, that's what the Christian faith always does. Biblical faith doesn't lead us into empty-headed, you know, wistfulness and butterflies and unicorns and, and just whistling, you know, a, a, a sweet tune as we tiptoe through the daisies. It doesn't do that. Biblical faith fits us for battle. Biblical faith fits us for war. You know, it arms us with the knowledge, with the confidence, with the faith that we need in order to to, and with the, the, the certainty of what will be so that we can confront what is now with renewed courage and with steadfastness of purpose. And so Isaiah is reminding us here, there's a battle going on. There's a battle going on, a battle for faith that's being waged in Judah. Okay, so here's what's going on. Like Sennacherib isn't very far from Jerusalem, right? The war machine of Assyria is poised to destroy the city and its people. And the great question that's at hand, and ironically, it is poised by, it's posed by the Rabshakeh. He's the one that asks the critical question in this text. And it's this, in whom do you trust? In whom do you trust? The entire thrust of the Rabshakeh's words are going to be to shake and destroy trust in Yahweh. And really, this entire exchange between Judah's officials and the Rabshakeh portrays for us what is the anatomy of, you know, 
the worldly assault on faith in God, whether it's through false teachers or through philosophers or government officials or everyday run-of-the-mill people in our fallen world. It's actually very remarkable. When you see this, I mean, his speech could have been written by Satan himself. It is so fiendish and twisted and, you know, appearing to be magnanimous and then humiliating. It's like, it's, it's got all of it. It's remarkable. It's, it's really a study in the devilish art of sowing doubt and unbelief in the heart and of intimidation and twisting and bending the truth, okay? So before we look at the actual exchange, I just want to set, um, I want to establish the setting for this confrontation. Right, remember where this, when this is. This is 701 B.C. We're 14 years into Hezekiah's reign, his soul reign. Remember he reigned for about, I think it was 12 years or so with his dad. And then he took over himself in 715. So now it's 14 years later, and, he, and he's, he's the sole ruler over Judah. And you remember, Hezekiah had embroiled himself in anti-Assyrian activity, right? He rebelled against them. He rebelled against the idea of Judah being a vassal state, so he stopped paying them, you know, the annual tribute, right? And, and it, it, it caused a stir. It, it, it shook up Sennacherib. Sennacherib was, was, was furious, right? And so... He immediately gathered his army and he set out to take care of these rebels. And the first thing he did was he, he, he took out the small states of the region, you know, um, teaching them a lesson that they would never forget, crushing them under the power of his army and deporting, you know, most of the people to other lands. And now he's determined to make Hezekiah pay in spades for his part in stoking the rebellion. In fact, already, according to Sennacherib's records, and Sennacherib's records, this is what we find. In Sennacherib's records, he claims to have captured 200,150 people, 46 towns, right? And, and, and deported, you know, deported all of those people into other areas in the, Assyrian, um, in the Assyrian Empire, if you will, right? And then by his own words, he said he had made Hezekiah to be a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage, those are Sennacherib's words, okay? So at this point, Sennacherib and his army, they looped around Jerusalem, okay, from, from the north. They'd gone around Jerusalem. They'd taken Lachish, which was the outlying fortress city, to the southwest of, of Jerusalem. It was really the last line of the city's defense. That was it. And when that city fell, Hezekiah took it upon himself to try to buy Sennacherib off. He thought the best course of action was to sue for peace, you know, what do, you, what do you want from me? I know we've been keeping back our money. What do you want from me to just go away and to leave us alone? And 2 Kings 18, verses 14 through 16 tells us that part of the story. It says, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Okay, so he didn't have that just lying around, right? I mean, it's not just something that he had there for, for you know, easy access. And so it says, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So he stripped the temple. He stripped his own palace. He stripped everything that he had, okay? To, in an effort to try to pay Sennacherib off. That was the plan. Sennacherib, though, refused to be placated, right? 
He was, he was, he, he, he instead was like, look, we're so, we're so far. I mean, we're right here. We might as well just finish the job. We might as well just, you know, take care of Jerusalem. We won't have to worry about him anymore. And so here's what he does. He sends the Rab Shackle. We'll talk about him a little bit more. Well, I'll tell you what he is right now. He's one of the government officials. Okay. That's what he is. The Rab Shackle was like a government official. Think of like, um, like an embedded sort of state department official with the army. Okay. And he has the right to kind of speak on behalf of Sennacherib. In fact, he's going to say specifically what Sennacherib has given him to say. Okay. And so he sends this Rabshakeh and he goes with, you know, an army along, not the whole army because, you know, they're still, you know, conducting operations. But he sends them with a port, portion of the army, some Syrian troops, to demand the surrender of Jerusalem or else. And this confrontation that we're going to look at breaks into like three parts. First of all, we've got this first speech that is directed at Judah's officials, right? And then there's this tense sort of interlude that goes on, you know? And then the third thing is this second speech that the Rabshakeh just makes directly to the soldiers that are on the wall, okay? And both of these speeches are designed to shake their faith and, and, and to destroy it, right? To, to alienate them from King Hezekiah, and to, to make them question, can we really trust God? That's the whole heart of this, okay? So look worth, with me first at speech one that's, that goes to the officials, okay? Look again, starting in verse one. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, there's just a couple of things here that I want to kind of point out that I want us to see as we get into this. First thing I want you to do is I want you to take note that the conversation here is between the Rabshakeh and Eliakim, who's the king's primary counselor, this dude Shebna, who had been demoted from that position that Eliakim now holds. You remember we talked about that a while ago um, in, in, in Isaiah. And now he's just the secretary. His job is to write down everything the Rabshakeh says. And then you got Joah. He's the recorder. He's kind of like, he would be like the official biographer um, for, for Hezekiah. Okay, so that's what you got. Hezekiah is not there. You know, they're, they're there to hear what the Rabshakeh has to say to Hezekiah, but Hezekiah is not there. And the reason he's not there is not out of fear, He's not there because it would have been a breach of propriety for him to speak to an under political dignitary and not to another king. Right. So that's why he's not there. Second, I want you to take note of the place. This is important that where where it takes where the, all of this goes on. It's the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Does it? All right. Let me jog your memory. That was the very location where earlier Hezekiah had met, or I'm sorry, Isaiah had met with Ahaz, the wicked king Ahaz, as Hezekiah's dad, and told him to turn back from his alliance with Assyria and to put his trust in the Lord or there would be serious consequences. And you remember Ahaz was like what? I'm not listening to you. I don't want to hear anything you have to say. Well, guess what? The Assyrian invasion was the outcome, the very outcome that Isaiah had predicted, right? 
So now here is the Rabshakeh attempting to destroy the faith of the people. And I want you to notice how he does it. I want you to see these tactics that he uses. First tactic that he uses I want you to see is that of intimidation and humiliation. Okay? The first tactic he uses to try to, 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 try to undercut their faith is the tactic of intimidation and humiliation. Look at it. Verses 4 and 5. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Now notice the way that the Rabshakeh refuses here to reference Hezekiah as a king. He doesn't, he doesn't call him King Hezekiah. He just calls him Hezekiah, right? But he magnifies and he exalts the king of Assyria, doesn't he? He calls him the great king. And, and, and what he's saying here is more than that Sennacherib is the great king in the area. What he's actually saying is that he's the great king of the earth. Okay? So, in other words, Sennacherib thought of himself as sort of godlike in his power and his, in his authority. And so did his followers. Okay? He was very much in the line of Pharaoh. Okay? And so, compared with Sennacherib, Hezekiah was a nothing, man. He was a nobody. You know? What in the world did he think he was doing? I mean, who are you to stand us up to such power and might? How are you going to, how do you refuse to bow before the powers that be? You're just going to get crushed. So he starts with like intimidation. He's like trash talking him, right? Like you got no chance against me, man. It would be, you know, and like, it's be like, let's say I played one-on-one with Michael Jordan, right? Not in his prime now, you know, how how old's Mike? 62 or whatever. Let's say I played one-on-one. And if he started trash talking me at the very beginning of the game, he would have every right to do so, right? Like, I'm not scoring a point against him. And the, and the whole idea of that trash do what? Intimidate you. Take your heart. And that's the first thing they start, he starts with here. Like, what are you doing? You know, you've got to be an idiot, right? He makes Hezekiah out to be a fool, right? And then he humiliates him. He humiliates him. Where does Hezekiah get off in refusing to submit to Sennacherib? Most likely... Here's the thing. The Rabshakeh had a knowledge of Hezekiah's call to the people to trust in the Lord, right? We know that he came to his senses and he he instructed the people, we're going to trust in the Lord. We're not going to surrender. We're going to trust in God. Most likely, you know, he he had knowledge of that, you know, as we'll see in a little bit even. And so he mocks Hezekiah for what he sees to be worthless words, right? Just saying, you know, trust in the Lord. Is that a strategy and a power for war? How is that going to help you? Right? That's the idea here. What good are words in the face of a war machine like that of Assyria? What's the basis that you now have for this newfound trust that you're so uppity? What are you thinking? How do you believe you could possibly survive and stand against such power? In fact, here's what I want you to see. This whole exchange. Like when you really enter into it, it becomes clear it's all spoken in sort of a condescending, patronizing, and a disdainful kind of way, isn't it? Like, oh, poor Hezekiah, what's wrong with you, right? But he's not done. He's not done. His second tactic is to highlight Hezekiah's earlier failures in foolishness, right? That's one of the great strategies of Satan, isn't it? Let me remind you what a failure you've been in the past, right? He says to him, Verse 6, Behold, you're trusting in Egypt. 
that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Now, there's no denying it. That was a foolish move, right? It was dumb. It was faithless, right? To ally Judah with Egypt was not any help at all, and it was to look to human solutions and, and you know, to return to the captivity from which God had already delivered his people. Egypt was weak, right? They, a reed that couldn't bear the weight of Judah, and trusting in them was only going to lead to destruction. The Rabshakeh was right in that, okay? Hezekiah had sinned, and he had foolishly thought that Egypt could provide security to him. And to his nation, and he was wrong. But, and this is the key, that was not Hezekiah's hope now. Apparently, Hezekiah had made his trust in Yahweh known, either publicly or among his counselors, and the Rabshakeh knew it. Either it was the word on the street, most likely, or there were spies among his counselors, which was also a possibility. But that the Rabshakeh knew that Hezekiah wasn't trusting in Egypt anymore, becomes really evident by what he says next. Yet, he couldn't resist, you know, first taking a shot at Hezekiah for his earlier sin and failure and foolishness, right? That brings us to his third tactic, right? And it's attempting to undermine trust by making confident assertions about things he doesn't understand. Making confident assertions about things he doesn't understand. Understand. We see that in our culture all the time. People speaking about, you know, thinking they're speaking, you know, profoundly about Christianity when they know nothing about it. Right? Watch this. He says, If you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Here's the insidious part about this. What the Rabshakeh says here is what? True. Hezekiah did do this. One of the very first things he did as king was institute religious reform, didn't he? And he, and he? and he made sure that all of the high places were torn down, the altars in Judah, he had them all ripped down, and he centralized worship in the temple in Jerusalem, right? But why did he do it? Why did he do it? He did it because they weren't authorized places of worship, right? They were rather places of idolatrous worship. They were places of the Asherah poles, where they the Canaanite goddess, right? He'd even take that bronze serpent. Remember the bronze serpent that Moses made in the wilderness during the midst of the plague? So if anybody looked upon that, that, that you know, bronze serpent, they would be healed. Remember that? Well, remember what happened with that? Neshutan. Remember what happened with that thing? It had been turned into an object of worship. So he had that broken. So he had torn down all of these high places and altars as an act of repentance. He torn them down as a return to the Lord. But here's the issue. The Rabshakeh interprets his actions as forsaking God, doesn't he? As somehow reducing the worship of God. As if the quantity of worship that was going on in the nation, which was, was what mattered, rather than the quality of it. Right? And so... He, he also probably knew there were people that, you know, were upset that Hezekiah had taken these steps and sort of stomped upon their rights and their sensibilities to, to worship God in the way they saw fit. But the point is, his comments are calculated to create doubt that, I, that Hezekiah was acting wisely and in accordance with God's will. It was, it was to call into question, you know, the Jewishness, or we might say the Christianness of such an action, 
right? Like, you know, so many pagans in our own nation who seem to know how to be a good Christian better than we do. Apparently, the Rabshakeh knows how better to be a faithful worshiper of God than Hezekiah and the people of Judah. It's very sneaky, isn't it? It's very insidious. And then his fourth tactic is outright mockery and taunting of Judah's weakness. Look at what he says next, man. Verses 8 and 9. This guy's a piece of work. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to, on your part, set riders on them. How then could you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? It's the essence of psychological warfare, isn't it? Think about what he's saying, in essence. You couldn't beat my master if he had one arm tied behind his back. In fact, here's how unfair this is. Well, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you can find the people to stick on them, I'll, I'll give you 2,000 horses. You're so lacking in power and in arms, right? We'll help you out. We'll help you out. Give you a fighting chance, right? He taunts them for their weakness. In fact, he implies that they wouldn't even have a chance against a far weaker opponent, right? Like, you guys are nothing to us. Notice, too, that he's going back to Hezekiah's earlier sin, right? He's bringing Egypt back into it. Egypt's not in question here anymore, but he still tries to bring Egypt back into it. See that? Then comes the fifth tactic. To state a half-truth minus the essential fact. To state a half-truth minus the essential fact. Look at what he says in verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. I just got to tell you one thing that really bugs me here. That had to go all over these guys. It's not that he is speaking of God here in generic terms. Look at your text. He's calling him Yahweh. He's calling him Yahweh, the covenant name for the people of God. He's calling him Yahweh. Like at that point, I know Hezekiah was like, you need to be quiet. Don't say anything. At that point, I'm not sure I could have been. I might have lost it in that point, right? Like that had to be so utterly offensive to these guys, right? But anyway, he says, look, I'm coming up here. The Lord told me to do it. Now, here's the deal. We don't know if the Rabshakeh had insider information on Isaiah's preaching. It wouldn't have been hard to get that. It wouldn't have been hard to procure, right? I mean, Isaiah was pretty open in his preaching, right? We've got no indication that, that he heard it, but neither do we have any indication that Yahweh spoke to Sennacherib and commissioned him. There's no evidence of that. Now, we know God's sovereign, okay? And we know that in His eternal purpose, He sent Assyria to discipline Judah, right? But the key thing here to remember is He didn't have to coerce an otherwise innocent Sennacherib to do this, right? This is exactly what Sennacherib wanted to do. This was the heart of... This is exactly the sin that Sennacherib wanted to commit. He wanted to be the king of the Middle East, right? And in addition... Something else we need to know is this, is that it was very common in those days for enemy commanders to claim the approval or the, the unction of the gods of the people that they were attacking in order to intimidate them. Like, you, you may not know this, but your God told me to come and do this. 
That's the idea, right? To scare him into submission. To say, even your God is against you. And that may be all that this was. Whatever it is, it's minus the essential truth, right? And what's that essential truth? The essential truth is this, is that God had not forsaken Judah, had he? The opposite was the truth. By bringing Sennacherib against them, he was disciplining his people. He was calling to himself a remnant. He was bringing them to repentance and to cling more closely to him. God was acting, even in the midst of these actions by the king of Assyria, he was acting in sovereign mercy. The truth is that the Lord had brought Judah to the end of her own resources so that she might learn afresh and anew what it meant to trust in him completely. He hadn't abandoned her and he would not abandon her. Yahweh meant this for good. And not for evil. He meant it for his glory. And not Sennacherib's. As he and his minions would soon find out. Right? Here's what we need to see. Half-truths are whole lies, beloved. Half-truths are whole lies. It is part and parcel of the methods of the great deceiver Satan. It's always Satan's way to make us think God's abandoned us. And then to use logic that's woven from half-truths, lies, to convince us of it. He gets done with his first part of his speech, right? Or maybe, you know, he actually, he actually gets interrupted in the middle of his speech. And there's this sort of tense interlude that takes place, right? Look at it starting in verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joash said to Rabshakeh, to the Rabshakeh, please, speak to your servants in Aramaic. For we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Now see what's going on here. The, the, the officials from Judah, they're concerned, right? Apparently, the Rabshakeh is speaking in Hebrew. He had been, look, that was not an accident. Okay, that was deliberate. It was purposeful, right? It wasn't meant to be a diplomatic exchange. It was meant to be a terroristic threat. That's what it was meant to be. And the more people understood it, the better. And the guys understand that. You know, Eliakim and Shebna and Joy, they get what's going on. And so they're like, hey, do us a favor, okay? Would you just... Let's speak in Aramaic. Aramaic was the lingua franca of the day. It was the, it was the, the common tongue that was used in, 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 in diplomatic discussions, right? So let's just, let's speak Aramaic. We understand it. You understand it. These guys don't need to hear all this, right? That's the idea. But the Rabshakeh has got no intention of following the quote-unquote rules, right? Instead, we read in verse 12, but the Rabshakeh said, well, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Here's another example of the tactics intended to extinguish faith. It's the sixth one so far. It's a feigned concern for the fate of those who put their trust and allegiance in God. It's a feigned concern for those who listened to Hezekiah, who is parroting Isaiah's words, right? The Rabshakeh just, you know, looks to undermine the confidence of these soldiers in the wisdom of trusting in God and in the wisdom of listening to and, and being led astray by Hezekiah by positioning himself as the one who's truly most concerned for their fate. I'm the one that's really concerned for you. I'm the one that really has your best interests in mind, right? And he states it in the most extreme and unsavory way possible, doesn't he? Like, I don't know if you can come up with a worse one than this, right? 
that these guys are going to be doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine. That's not on the Frankie Rollins menu. I'm just saying it's not, right? And this feigned concern, right? This, this, I'm really concerned about you guys. It leads to his second speech in which he speaks over the heads of the Judean officials to the men on the walls looking to cause them to break faith with God. Look at this. Starting in verse 13. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in the language of Judy. See what he's doing? Get the picture. Like here are the guys. They're the representatives of the nation. They're trying to like do this discourse, right? And then he's like, listen, friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ear, right? That kind of thing. Or friends, you know, Judeans, countrymen, right? That's the idea. And he begins to shout, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. True, he won't. But that's kind of a half-truth again, isn't it? No, God will. The one in whom Hezekiah trusts. Anyways, he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Here's tactic number seven, if you're keeping count. The misrepresentation and open attack on the truth. The misrepresentation and open attack on the truth. What's he do here? Well, he misrepresents God. He misrepresents the king of Assyria. And he misrepresents, yet again, the plain truth of God's word. I want you to notice again that what Rabshakeh does here as he's, as he's speaking to the soldiers on the wall. He exalts the king of Assyria as the great king, right? As godlike in comparison with Hezekiah. And he disdains Hezekiah as being, you know, unworthy, an unworthy opponent. And in that, ironically, he's correct. Hezekiah is an unworthy opponent for Sennacherib and for his, for his, for, for his army, right? But here's what, Sennach- or what the Rabshakeh fails to perceive. This isn't a battle between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. It's a battle, rather, between Sennacherib and Yahweh. The Rabshakeh attacks Hezekiah's words, really the word of Isaiah as it was given to him by the Lord, and so therefore the word of the Lord. And he plainly says, he just outright says, well, it's false. It's empty. It's a lie. It's deceptive. It's vain. Everything that he says, it's a complete lie. It's all made up. It's a fairy tale. Sound familiar? Of course. I mean, that's about as open as the rejection of God's word gets, isn't it? But he doesn't stop there. This is so fiendish. He says, verses 16 and 17, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Talk about serpentine, buddy. That's serpentine. Speaking on behalf of, oh, here it is, tact number eight fault, the false promise of peace and satisfaction through compromise. The false promise of peace and satisfaction through compromise. Speaking on behalf of Sennacherib, he says in effect, look, just come and strike a peace with me. Forget Hezekiah. Just come off the walls, strike a peace with me, and come and see what a good king I am. 
right? Come and make peace with me and you'll be blessed. You know, you, you'll find that what I offer is far better than what Hezekiah can offer you. Come, let us reason together. Compromise with me and we'll strike a peace and you'll prosper. You'll have food and vineyards and water right now and then I'll take you away to, to a land that's just as great. Just like your own. It's, it'll have everything your heart could desire. Just come off the wall. Well, that's always the promise of Satan. The promise of the ungodly who seek to tear you away from your faith and your trust in the Lord. It's, it is always, it is always that promise. Just a little compromise. Just one and no more. We won't ask anything else, just this one thing. And we'll leave you alone. We won't trouble you any further. It's such a small thing, really. If you think about it, it's so tiny. It's just a small thing. And the benefits are so much better. It all sounds so modern, doesn't it? All Judah had to do, all they had to do was look upon the nations that Assyria had conquered. Right? Which of them were better off in the end? That's a big fat zero. Right? None of them. What the Rav Shackle was offering was not compromise. I want you to see that. What Satan offers, what ungodly people who despise God are offering is not Compromise. There is no such thing as compromise with evil. It always wants more. What he offered was not compromise. It was subjugation. It was surrender. It was oppression. He can't deny that. These guys aren't stupid. He tries to sweeten the bitter pill of deportation, but, but that's exactly what he's offering. I offer you subjection. I offer you subjugation. I offer you surrender and oppression. That's what I offer, but I offer it nicely. With a smile on my face. With a false promise. And then he wraps up this speech by saying, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Syria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord, man, again, that he's speaking the word Yahweh, should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Here's the last tactic. Number nine, it's the denial of the unique glory of the one true God as God, as the only God. What he says here, beloved, is nothing short of blasphemy. Really, it isn't. Comparing the God of glory to deities invented by humans and inspired by demons. It's like the modern mantra, you know, all gods are the same, always the God are the same, every religion's the same. Really, all this is is evidence of ancient pluralism. Pluralism's not new. It's been around a long time, right? And through the Rabshakeh, Sennacherib reduced God to the level of idols made by men. And I want to tell you something, that is Sennacherib's fatal mistake. That's the fatal mistake right here. He sets himself up as superior to the living God the Holy One of Israel. Now in that, he's not unique in history. And for it, he will pay dearly. 
And as for the response of the soldiers on the wall, the officials themselves, it's just silence in the face of attempted manipulation, right? We read starting in verse 21. But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asath, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Despite the Rabshakeh's best efforts, right? You know he's trying to goad him into something. They say nothing. They're obedient to Hezekiah and apparently trusting in the Lord. This confrontation over, the Judean officials then go. They go to present themselves to Hezekiah and they know the seriousness of the situation. They go in the way that was customary in those days when you received a, you know, a, a diplomatic envoy in this way. They rend their garments in an act of mourning casting themselves upon the Lord, and they go and they see Hezekiah. And we'll study Hezekiah's response and God's intervention next week. But here's the key thing that comes out of this text. It's that question, right? In whom are you trusting? In whom are you trusting? In fact, it's the recurring question that confronts every single generation, isn't it? And every single human, human being, every individual. Because our response to it shapes the whole of our lives, and it, it determines our eternal destiny, right? Yeah. Trusting in ourselves, in our, in our own wisdom, in alliances or acceptance with others, in you know, the, 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 the approval of the culture, in our social or economic status, in anything other than the supremacy and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King will prove worthless for salvation and it will be worthless as a foundation for remaining firm in the time of testing. You depart from Christ, it's over. It's over. The challenge offered by the Rabshakeh, you know, it contained a mixture of falsehood and truth, didn't it? But even the truth that was in there was really only half-truths, wasn't it? Filled with distortions. But the greatest and the most fatal error was the denial of the unique glory of Almighty God. That goes well for no one, you know? God will not share His glory with another, right? Faith in Him, faith in Christ is the only sure foundation. That's it, right? Thankfully, these guys weren't moved. They weren't moved. It's remarkable if you think about it, right? It's remarkable if you think about it. Like, the nation was in such a spiritual decline, and yet here they are. And they're standing firm. The words that Hezekiah spoke to them must have resonated in their souls by God's grace. And here they are, standing firm. As we close tonight, I just want us to think about the tactics that the Rabshakeh used to attempt to undermine faith and trust in the Lord, right? To, to undermine devotion and obedience to Yahweh. And I, wanna, I really want to hear your thoughts about them as they regard our present context. Um, it doesn't have to have a, be a long thought or anything, but just when you look at these, do you see this? I've given you a list in case you missed them. Just look at them again, right? Number one, intimidation and humiliation. Number two, Highlighting earlier failures and foolishness. Number three, confident assertions about what they don't understand. Number four, mockery and taunting of, let me add this, apparent weakness, right? Number five, stating half-truths minus essential facts. Six, feigned concern for the fate of those who put their trust and allegiance in God. Seven, misrepresentation and open attack on the truth. Eight, false promise of peace and satisfaction through compromise. And then last, the denial of the unique glory of the one true God. Which of those do you see at work in our, in our world today? What do you think is most prevalent and how? This isn't so much about 
comment on a, one of the tactics, but looking at the one when he was talking to the men on the wall and promising them water and vines and figs and the easy way out right now, I have a tremendous respect for the men on that wall because you're looking at men with wives and children and they're faced with feeding them instant safety, earthly safety, or the greater spiritual good of honoring God, even if it meant their death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm amazed. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is a sign. It's of remarkable. Incredible. Yeah. Fortitude repentance. Yep. I would agree with that. All right, let's pray. We need to get have some time to, to spend in prayer. So, Sam, will you pray for us? God, praise you for this time that we had to realize the the evil devices that are at work in this world that are set against us and set against you. And Father, I pray that we remain very strong and very faithful to you in display a loyalty for you that comes because we have been saved from so much. And I ask that you would be with us in our day-to-day that uh, we would put forth effort, true effort into realizing how we are living in this world and how we are bringing you glory or we're not. And so I, I ask that you be with us. We we need you. We need you more than we need our next breath. And so I thank you for this time. I pray that you would hear us as we uh, ask and, and be glorified in you in prayer. Um, hear us and please be with us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.